this morning, my task is to continue a, a series that we started last week that we're calling Royals. Royals, becoming who we are. And in this series, we're really leaning into the idea of identity. We are talking about our identity. And our identity is really the answer to the question, who are we really? Who are you really? There are a lot of things that are true about you, but when it's all peeled back, who are you Really, show me the decisions that you're making. Show me the direction that your life is taking. And I will show you something you believe about who you are. Really, who we believe we are is immensely significant. As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that ultimately who we are, our identity is what God sees and says about us. That's how we're defining identity for the purposes of this series and I trust for the purposes of the rest of your life. Who you are really is what Jesus says is true about you, what God sees about you, and it's all tied to what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Um, Your truest identity is not a feeling. Your truest identity is not what you feel about yourself. It's not what you think about yourself. It's not what you've done in your life. It's not what's been done to you. Your truest identity is not what your parents have said about you. It's not what the culture has said about you. It's not what social media says that you are. Who you ultimately are is what God sees And says about you because of what Jesus Christ has done. We looked at this passage of scripture together last week in Colossians chapter 3. It's going to pop up on the screen here. And um, it says, since then you have been raised with Christ. If you've put your faith in him. He says, you've been raised with Christ, so set your hearts, what you want, what you chase after, on things above where Christ is is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, the way you think on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. The old you is gone. And your new life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your realist you is now hidden with Christ in God. God, who you ultimately are, is never to be defined by something here on earth. It is ultimately defined as heaven sees you. And what what we want to learn to do is to lean into that and to live out of that. What we want to learn to do is think about us the way heaven thinks about us. Um, Today, we want to look at... This incredible truth that we've been singing about um, already this morning. And um, it's a truth that when God looks at you, he calls you forgiven. In light of what Jesus Christ has done, when God sees you, what he says about you is you are 
forgiven. Forgiven is who you are on account of what Jesus has done. If you have a copy of the Bible, we want to do a little bit of work before we apply this. We want to return to the gospel and and see exactly what Jesus has done before we apply this. But this incredible passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a copy of the Bible, meet me there. We're going to have the verses up here on the screen as well. And Ephesians is, again, my favorite book in the Bible. The first three chapters are chapters about our identity. Chapters in which God is just speaking over his people. This is who you are. This is what is true about you, whether you like it or not. This is how you woke up this morning because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And here's what he says. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. In him, that's Jesus... We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I love that. With all wisdom and understanding, whatever God has done for you was calculated. It wasn't an accident. He lavished it with all wisdom and understanding, but I digress for the purposes of this morning. This is such a beautifully vivid picture Paul paints in this passage. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, redemption through his blood, uh, redemption, redeem, redeem. The word to redeem means to secure the release of a captive. To secure the release of a captive. Think of a prisoner locked up on death row and you start to get a picture of what Paul is trying to paint a prisoner locked up on death row uh, an individual who's completely completely subject to the power and will of their warden you eat when the warden says You wake when the warden says, you go where the warden says, when the warden says, oh, you have a will. Sure, you can make choices, but your choices have been rendered inoperable. Oh, they are subject to what the warden in charge of that particular prison wants you to do and where he allows you to go. Um... A prisoner. Ah, you have dreams, sure, but they are rendered irrelevant on account of the fact that you are locked up, subject to powers beyond you. Your life is not yours. It now belongs to the system. It's in the hands of the warden. Um, And Paul would say over and over again throughout the New Testament, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this was your story. That was your identity, a captive prisoner on death row. And let me just say to you, by the way, if you've never put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, this is your story. You are a captive prisoner 
on death row. In fact, the very next chapter, uh, Paul paints uh, 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 an even more colorful picture of what this looks like. Just turn a page or, or glance over, depending on how your Bible's laid out, or check it out on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The, the word dead here means to be powerless, means to be helpless. It means to be completely subject to the will of another. Um, oh, you have a will, but it's been rendered inoperable on account of the fact that you are subject to your wardens, in this case, power and will. And it's interesting, though, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul names the warden. And he calls the warden sin. Mm. Apart from Jesus, this is our story. We were all completely helpless, completely powerless against sin. Prisoners. Captives to that instinct in us, that impulse in us to run away from God and to rebel from what God desires for us, from what God commands us to do. Sin. Sin. We did what sin wanted, when sin wanted. How sin wanted, we were on sin's schedule. Um, captive. And sin was the warden. We had choice, yeah. But that was subject to the will of sin as our warden. Now, like we like to say around here, you don't have to believe that that is true about you or that was true about you because I said so. Matter of fact, you don't even have to take the Bible's word for it. That you're a captive, powerless to your own sin. Um, just try and prove it wrong. Just try and prove it wrong. I mean, just try, just try a, a, a no-sin Sunday challenge. Just give it a shot. 24 hours. That's it. 24 hours. Do not lie to anybody. And by lie, I mean do not mislead anyone in any way. Do not exaggerate anything in any way. I mean, and while you're at it, do not think a sexual thought about somebody that you're not married to at all. And also, do not treat anyone or anything like they matter more than God in your life. 24 hours, tweet the results, let us know how it goes. Try it! We haven't even, by the way, started talking about that one thing that you do that the people closest to you don't even know that you struggle with. That thing that no one even knows that you wrestle with in your mind. Just saying, 24 hours, give it 
a shot. I'm just telling you, if sin wasn't such a powerful warden and we weren't prisoners to it, you would be able to stop whenever you wanted to. You'd just be able to decide, I'm not going to do anything against what God has said or what God ultimately desires. But as it is, captive prisoners stuck and sin is the warden. But it's worse than that. Verse 2, Ephesians chapter 2. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. This is our story, y'all. And followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a reference to Satan, the devil himself. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says we weren't just prisoners stuck in our sin. He says, and we were being led by Satan the whole time. This is grueling. A picture of prisoners under the power of sin who are being played by Satan. Who are being led by him through his paths. Because there are paths and there's a way in this world and that the prince of this world, Satan, is the one who is... Designing those paths. Slave to sin. A prisoner to sin. Stuck in Satan's maze. Running along his paths. That's our story. That's the picture Paul is painting. Um, And it's really interesting. Because the whole time we are prisoners with sin as our warden, we're stuck and we can't stop. And we are running Satan's place, moving along his path. And the whole time we are walking around talking all Bon Jovi like it's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. I'm going to do me. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. Oh, yeah. I keep pretending to be someone I'm not because I want to. I keep pretending to be someone I'm not because I choose. I keep running back to this illicit sexual experience just because I choose to. I do exactly what I want when I want to. And I lose it on my kids because they just don't listen. And so I lose it on my kids because they just don't listen. Oh, and I pretend to be someone I'm not just because I choose to. And oh, I use sometimes because I get super stressed. And oh, when I get stressed, I got to use because I'm stressed and I've got to calm myself down. And so I just do it because I choose to. I'm making all of these choices because I do. I just run to these sexual experiences because I feel like it. And I just pretend to be someone I'm not because I just want to. And the whole time Satan is like, look at you running my place. And I'm just turning around. Just turn around once. And you will see this well-worn path back and forth to the same issues that you've struggled with for years and years. And it's these same paths back And forth and back and forth while Satan just applauds. Run the play. Run the play. It's a grueling picture. And in case I'm tempted to think, "Mm, that doesn't apply to me. 
Paul says, verse 3, Now all of us lived among them at one time. This was our story, just gratifying the cravings of our flesh over and over. And when sin calls, we run. And we run down the path Satan has laid out. And we can't stop back and forth, all of us, following its desires and thoughts. Every single one of us lived among the prisoners, he says. At one time or another. Giving into the impulses, giving into our passions, rebelling against God. And he says, all of us, which is such an interesting thing. You know what Paul's insinuation is? Millions of people around the world are doing the exact same thing and every single one of us feels so unique no you don't understand the way i sin it's different i'm more unique the reasons i do it is not it's not like everybody else and he's saying oh and your parents did the same thing by the way us parents need to tell our teens we ran these same plays we know them we've been doing the same thing struggling in the same ways running the same paths and each of us thinks we are unique and powerful and making these decisions and paul is like you were captive prisoners running back and forth in that little cell from the cell to, to, the, to the chow line and back to the cell and feeling and yelling and boasting and bragging about your freedom. All of us lived among them at one time. It's cruelly masterful for the devil, man, to have a world of prisoners deceived into believing and boasting like we are free. But it's worse Because Satan doesn't just accidentally lay these paths for all of us to walk back and forth feeling unique and free. Or these paths lead places. They lead to destruction. He knows it. But more than that. Man, it leads us straight into the judgment of... It is Satan saying, run down these paths and I'll meet you at the end. I want your fate to be the exact same fate as mine. It says in the second part of verse 3, Ephesians 2, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of God's holy and eternal judgment. Because every sin against God is a capital offense. Because he is a holy God. And he can never ignore sin without becoming untrue to himself. Because he is a just God. He must punish all sin. Otherwise he becomes untrue to himself. Paul is saying, no, we weren't just stuck As prisoners to sin. We weren't just stuck under the influence of Satan. Believing that we were free. We were stuck with an inevitable sentence. To suffer God's eternal judgment. God's eternal punishment. He says we were all objects of God's wrath. Holy judge of the universe had declared us guilty for this thing we kept doing over and over again. Guilty of our sin and now sentenced to suffer 
forever. Hell was our destination, and we couldn't change the coordinates. Okay, where were we? That's right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what it says. In him, Jesus, um, new story, though, we now have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. I don't know if I mentioned that redeem means to secure the release of a prisoner. In Jesus, Paul says, new story. Now we've been released from captivity. The gospel is so good. So Jesus shows up. And he says to the holy judge, who also happens to double as his father in this particular episode. And he says to his father, please release the prisoners. Please release the prisoners. And God says to Jesus, "Um, I'm a holy God. I'll release the prisoners, but someone's got to pay for their crime. I'll release the prisoners, but I cannot let any sin go unpunished. Someone has to face my judgment. And Jesus says to his father, put it on me. Are you sure? Put it on me. Put his sentence on me. Put his punishment on me. Matter of fact, I'll step into death row in his place and absorb all of his crimes. Absorb all of her crimes. And set the prisoner free. The gospel is more beautiful than we often realize. And on the cross, with his sinless blood, Jesus secured the freedom For sinful, stuck, sentenced prisoners. Verse 7, Ephesians 1. In him, Jesus, we now have redemption through his blood. He secured the release of prisoners with his blood. And the forgiveness, it says, of Sins Um, Forgiven is a term that describes the updated legal status of a prisoner. Mm. Forgiven and redeemed are beautiful words. Forgiven is a term that describes the legal status of a redeemed prisoner. Ah, forgiven is God's updated declaration over your life. It's beautiful. Forgiven is God walking back into the courtroom while you stand there and saying to you, um, 
it is my delight to hereby declare that you are not guilty. It's God walking into the courtroom and making the declaration. Hey, just so you know, the debt, what you owed for all of your crimes, the debt has been fully and completely paid on your behalf. Every sin charge against you has been completely canceled. I want that word back, by the way. Every sentence spoken over you has been permanently eliminated. What? How? Well, because uh, the judge's son apparently came in and offered to take your place for 33 years on death row and to absorb your punishment and to experience your death to pay for your release. Now, let it be announced to you, you are forgiven. You are not guilty. It is as if you never committed a single crime. Your case is dismissed. You are free to go. So, I'm just here to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your story. You are forgiven. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven. Sin is not your warden anymore. The sentence owed to you is gone. Heaven is not after you anymore. Heaven holds nothing against you anymore forgiven when God looks at you what he says about you is you are forgiven you are not guilty as if you had never committed a single crime as if you had never sinned forgiven that's who you are. So, we're going to do a couple of strange things as we kind of tease this out a little bit. The first one, the first one is I'm going to ask politely that if you happen to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that you go ahead and declare it. I don't care if you whisper it or if you say it out loud or if you shout it. I just want us to get used to speaking our new identity, to speaking our new names. So if you don't mind, feel free to go ahead and say, I'm forgiven. Yeah. And for those of you who didn't see it coming, you feel like, okay, I wasn't ready for it the first time. I'll give you a second chance to go ahead and say it. I'm forgiven. Yeah, you just agreed with heaven just now. You just agreed with God just now. And I hope you start to get used. To, that is who you are. Maybe freak someone out today when they ask you, hey, who are you? Forgiven, but my name though. <laughs> Woo! Um, that's how heaven thinks about you. 
So that's exactly how you ought to think about you forgiven. So let's lean into that truth a little bit so we can live it out. If forgiven is what heaven says, then what on earth needs to be silenced? If the truth about you and me is that we are forgiven, then what lie must die? Uh, I have a couple of suggestions, and I don't know necessarily that these are suggestions for you as much as these are lies that I've wrestled with my entire journey of faith, and I'm still being healed from in my new identity. Um, so I'll share them with you, see if you relate. Uh, here's the first lie that must die. It's what I'm going to call these are tacky, cheesy, but this is my stuff, not yours. Don't judge. You can call it whatever you want. This is uh, the latter God lie. Um. Mm. Most of my Christian life, this has been the lie I've struggled deeply with. Um, So the latter lie, it it goes something like this. I'm a sinful man. Um, I'm trying to become a, a righteous man. I'm a sinful man trying to become a... Righteous man. And the way I become a righteous man is by doing fewer sinful things and doing more righteous things. Simple. Just behave more righteously and behave less sinfully. I feel like I should say this too. When I say that, I usually mean by um, behaving less sinfully, I'm usually thinking about like, you know, the, the big sins, like the, the things I, I struggle with, the things like I feel the most uh, shame over, right? Like I need to just, I need to do that less. I need to do that less. So here's how it works. So if I go a day without doing one of the biggies, Right? then I get to step up the ladder one rung. Woo, because I've been a good boy. I've behaved myself. Now, of course, at the top of the ladder isn't just righteousness. At the top of the ladder is the smile of the living God who I'm trying to make proud. If it happens that, ah, man, I'm rolling and I go two days I climb to the second rung. I'm moving now. I'm moving now. You never know. Occasionally something happens and man, I'm rolling, man. And I got like two more days. And now I'm like on rung number four. Woo! This is about the time where I hope you ask me how I'm doing. Because I want to, t- I'm doing so good. Walking in the Lord. Woo! You should try it too. I feel good. I'm praying. Showing up to small groups so people ask me how I'm doing. Serving. Feeling really positive about myself. 
because I'm on the wrong foot. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, man. I mean, I've gotten up some rungs, I don't know, maybe to eight. You get there and it's just like, oh, I'm feeling great. Day five, seven, whatever the case is, ooh, temptation was a little strong today. I got triggered. And I messed up. Then what happens? Oh, it is not a slow fall. It is a fast fall all the way back down to the ground with a thumping sound. I landed back in the mess of my own sin. And now I feel so ashamed. I feel so disillusioned. I feel so disappointed because now I have to start climbing all over again. And I don't know if I can. Maybe I should just hang out here for a little while. Because now I have to start working all over again. Now I'm, don't ask me how I'm doing. Don't make me lie to you and add to. Oh, now I don't want to show up at small group or show up at church. People might know. People might see it on me. So I'm back to ground zero and I have to start this climb all over again. That, my friends, is the ladder. Lie. That's the ladder, God, lie. Um, If you believe that you are your level on some ladder of righteous behavior, that might explain, pun intended, why your faith is so up and down. And up and down. Why you feel so tired so often. Why you can't say like walking with Jesus is a joy. Christianity doesn't feel like a joy to you. Which is one of the reasons you don't talk about it much. You don't want your friends to be a part of that experience. Doesn't feel like a joy at all. Feels like a chore. And I just want to say the latter is a lie. I just came to announce to you that whether you're on the first rung, the eighth rung, or on the ground, guess what? You're forgiven. I'm going to say that for the person who's going to be in the car and said, I should have said amen on that spot. Uh, Whether you're on the third rung, the eighth rung, or whether you're on the ground, you're forgiven. The latter is a lie. You don't start over with God. You're forgiven. If we had more time, we'd talk about, by the way, how super arrogant this is. The latter is super arrogant because my version of the latter, like I said, has decided that certain sins are worse than others. So if I go a day without doing what? That one thing, you know. The big one. Then I get to climb up a rung. And if I go two days, I get to climb up two rungs. And the whole time, I'm a jerk to people. I think I'm better than everyone. I'm being dishonest about who I really am. I'm being, I'm sinning the whole time. But yet somehow I've decided, no, but those ones don't really count. I'm going to keep climbing. Listen, if you want to climb a ladder, 
You better keep the whole law. The truth of the matter is if that's the way we really believe theologically, none of us have ever gotten off the ground. Ever. It also explains why Christians become super snooty when they get to like rung three. Yes. We have a corner on morality. All these people down here struggling with struggle. Catch up. And it's annoying, unbecoming. The latter is a lie. Nope. Jesus climbed a cross. So you wouldn't have to climb a ladder to God. I'm telling you, you are forgiven. Not because of anything you've done. Lest anyone should boast. I came to announce to somebody, listen, you are not your last mistake. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are not your worst failure. You are forgiven. Don't let anyone define you by something that you did or something that you struggle with. You are not your struggle. You are Forgive. Heaven does not look at you and define you by your struggle or your failure or your mistake. That's what it means to be forgiven. You are not your guilt. You are not your shame that you've been hauling around for years and years and years. And I just came to speak some freedom in your new identity. You are forgiven. Put the shame down. Because of Jesus, who said, come to me, all you, all you who are tired of climbing and falling and climbing and falling. Aren't you exhausted? Climbing and falling and climbing and falling. And he says, and I will give you rest. The climb is over. Here's another one I I struggle with. This is the, um, the angry God lie. We're going to struggle a little bit with this one. But again, my prayer is that we would lean in and we would be healed of some of the lies and set free to live in our true and new identity. The angry God lie is tied to the latter lie. Um, If God is basing his disposition towards me on my behavior, then what happens when I mess up? Let me ask you this personally. When you mess up or you sin or you blow it, however you define that, what expression do you picture on God's face? I just came to let you know if it's anything other than a smile, it's a lie. It's a lie. But this is me. And then I fell to the bottom of the ladder and God is 
furious, just like my dad was furious when I messed up, let alone when I mess up for the 80th time. Oh, God is now fuming. He is mad at me. He is angry with me, which might explain why your prayer life is so inconsistent. Do you want to hang out with somebody who's angry with you? In fact, if we're honest, many of us picture God as angry with us most of the time. Are you going to journey in joy with a cranky God who is frowning all the time? No, that's going to explain why we keep our distance. And that's going to explain why we miss intimacy. That's going to explain why, again, we are exhausted. Because the way it works is, man, I messed up God. Uh, Don't look at me. Give me a second. Just give me a second. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to do better, God. I'm going to get to wrong four. I promise. I'm going to get you to smile at me. Because the perception is God is angry, especially when I mess up. And I'm just telling you, if you are forgiven, if that is true, the angry God has to go. It's a lie. Smile is his permanent expression towards you. I'm going to let you sit with that for a second. God's not mad at you. In fact, let me take it a step further and create some dissonance, some tension in the Christians. There is nothing you can do to make God angry with you. One, one thousand, two, one thousand. Just let that hang there. That truth will change your world. Nothing you can do. If you're a follower of Jesus, nothing you can do. And if you don't believe me, and you don't believe the word of God, then believe you. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Question number one. When Jesus died on the cross, feel free to answer this out loud, crowd participation. When Jesus died on the cross, question How many of your sins did he pay for? All of them? Are you sure? Okay. Question number two. When Jesus died on the cross, how much of God's wrath, judgment for your sin... Did he absorb? All of it? Are you sure? Maybe I should rephrase. When Jesus died on the cross. How much of God's anger. Towards you. Did he absorb? So he can't be mad at you. There's no anger left then. Jesus took it all. Jesus took all of God's anger. He's smiling at you. Get used to it. Get used to the smile of God. And can I just say, by the way, for some of us sanctimonious ones like me who still struggle with this, I don't want God to ever be angry with me. 
You don't ever want God to be mad at you. That's not a good place to be. But as it stands, we've been redeemed by his blood and we've been forgiven. Heaven holds nothing against you. God is not angry with you. Jesus absorbed the entire measure of the wrath of God. Mad God is a lie. Now, he may rebuke me. He may redirect me. He may correct me. He may discipline me, (laughs) not because he's angry with me, but because God disciplines those he what? Those he loves. And he even asks the question, what kind of father doesn't discipline those that he loves? He's not doing that because he's mad. Please hear me. Someone needs to hear. God is not out to get you. That's a lie. God is not sitting with a clipboard waiting for you to mess up. Some of us have this janky image of God. Like he's sitting around and he just can't wait for you to fall off the rung. So that he can say, ah, gotcha. Some of you believe that your life is about to be a disaster because God's just been waiting. And because of that thing you did in college or in high school, like he's just never going to let you. He's just waiting to lash out at you. That's not God. He lashed out at Jesus on your behalf. He's smiling. You're forgiven. I'm going to give you a chance to just declare it one more time. I'm forgiven. Um, I would plead with you to just continue to think about if I'm forgiven, what are some other lies that I've been believing that are not true? A couple of quick things. Um, I think as we believe this, we're going to live differently. It's going to affect the way we live. I think forgiven people, when we realize our forgiveness, we're going to, we're going to praise much. We're going to praise much. Um, that's why it's so important for us to come back to the gospel and for the church to never stop, start saying, oh, we're talking about Jesus dying on a cross again. Everything that's true about you is born out of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And if not, we're going to start throwing around words like forgiven, forgiven, and it won't mean as much to us. If we pull it away from the blood and the sacrifice and the substitution of Jesus on our behalf. But once we realize this and we understand that we've been forgiven, we're going to praise much. And that just makes sense. I'm asking you, what would you say if you had an opportunity to sit down with a person who took your place on death row and took your execution? And you had an opportunity to talk to them. I'm curious to know, what would you say to them? I'm guessing... Thanks would be part of that conversation. And not the cute little thanks either. Like every, I don't know, how can I, I don't, I can't find words. I wonder what do I, how do I even praise you? Which is one of the reasons we worship corporately. It's like we don't even, can we just raise our hands and a leg like I don't even know you're so good. A forgiven people are a praisey people. They're super grateful and express it often. I couldn't have earned this by climbing a ladder.
This will sound strange to you, but again, process it with your small group, process it as a family. Uh, Forgiven people obey much. Forgiveness will make us want to obey God. Not so that he'll smile, but because he's already smiling. Um, I'm just asking you, if the judge walked into the courtroom and said to you, you're free to go. You're free to step out of death row. How come? Uh, Well, my son actually took your place on death row. I'm just asking you. Do you suspect that you would bust up out of the courtroom and be like, I cannot wait to go commit some crimes? Would you? Not if you understood what just happened for you. You would walk out of that place and you would be thinking, how do I make the most of this freedom I've received at such a high price? I, I, I never want to dishonor that sacrifice. That's often the fear, by the way, in the church is if you preach grace too much, you know what those kids are going to do? They'll be like, if I'm forgiven, then I'm just going to go live however I want. No, you will not. Not when you understand the gospel. In view of what Jesus has done, in view of God's mercy, you are going to want to offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What can I do? What can I do? How can I live in a way that says thank you for what it is that you've done on my behalf? Because it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's actually not a ladder. It's grace and gratitude that drives us to living a life of obedience over and over again. Which is a reason we keep coming back to the cross so it re-trampolines us into a life of grateful obedience. Forgiven people live obediently. One last thing, and this will confuse you a little bit, but you know what? Um, I'm leaving in a couple of minutes. So, ah. Forgiven people confess much. If you believe you're forgiven, you will confess sin often. And with that, I've got to say, please hear me. Sin is still sin. Sin is still wrong. Sin is still a capital offense. God still hates sin. I want to make that very clear. The fact that God does not condemn me or punish me because of sin is not because it's not evil. It's because Jesus paid for it. Jesus still had to die for it. There are people who are going to go to hell because of things that I do on an hourly basis. And the only difference is that they've not put their faith in Jesus to carry their sin. Because sin, y'all, is still sin. And for the believer who's been forgiven, please hear me tell you this. Sin will still, it'll steal your joy. There's still, it's still going to ruin your relationships. It's looking for every opportunity to throw you off course 
The devil still loves for sin to mute our ability to hear the Holy Spirit speaking into our worlds. He loves to use sin to grieve the Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the enemy loves to use it to interrupt, to destroy, to mess with things in our World. When I become aware of my sin, and please hear me, big sin or small sin, as a forgiven person, I want to rush back into the presence of God and say, I acknowledge that you are right and I am wrong and I am so sorry. And Father, I just ask, would you redeclare your forgiveness over me? Would you just redeclare your forgiveness over me? I want to live in light of your forgiveness, not in light of my flesh. Would you please just pronounce your forgiveness afresh over me? I don't believe I'm less forgiven, but I want to constantly be removing anything that gets in the way of my hearing from him or my living fully in him and for him. And I think forgiven people confess much. I don't know how the spirit of God is inviting you to grow, to believe that you are forgiven this week. For some of us, it's just, we need to write stuff somewhere. So that every day, maybe this week, you just say at least once a day, I am forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. I am forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. For some of us, we may need to come at it and say or write somewhere, God's not mad at me. God's not mad at me. I've been living like God's, God's not mad at me because of Jesus. For some of us, we just need to declare God is smiling. God is smiling, yeah. And yeah, God is still smiling. Yeah, God is smiling. God is smiling at me. And for many of us who've had maybe parents who were very, very hard to please and very, very hard you know, to, 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 to feel like you made them proud... I pray the spirit would just break lies and break some of the past and break some of the chains off of all of that and just allow you to enjoy living in the smile of your father on account of the fact that you are, you're forgiven. Heaven holds nothing against me. Maybe that's some of you. And maybe some of you have even had run-ins with the law. You know, where for the rest of your life, you carry this designation. And you need to know in Jesus Christ, heaven holds nothing against you. It's as if you never sinned. God's not out to get you. I don't know what the Spirit wants to do in you with that. But Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would break chains. uh, You would silence lies. And you'd allow your children to live like royals who are forgiven by their dad. That we would run into your presence knowing that you're always glad to see us. You're always smiling. That in light of what you've done for us, we would just want to to live in a way that honors you. To live in a way that honors Jesus. To offer our lives as a thank you very much day after Day. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's never put their faith in Jesus, that today would be the day that they would say yes to Jesus, free offer to fully and completely forgive forever if they would just acknowledge they cannot do it, they need him to do it for them.
Lord, help us to live in light of your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.